had never been adapted in its original language in German. There's a new adaptation. It's in English, but we have to do it in German. And that, that was so appealing, especially after reading the, the script, the, the storyline, including my uh, character, is not something that is in the book. That is also something that I find always interesting and, and intriguing and bold. If you touch a holy material such as this famous book, which had already been adapted cinematically in a masterful way back in the days, to do something new with it. And by this storyline, you add some very interesting historical and political um, context. And dramatically speaking, film-wise, it was interesting to go back and forth in that last third of the film, you know, going to, to the trenches and then back to, to the train. And you realize it comes down to a couple of powerful men signing that document, and most of them not willing to do so. Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 31.1, All's Quiet with Dave Kinnaman. Dave Kinneman and I used to teach across the hall from one another. He taught American history, which I thought was boring. I taught world history, which he really never gave a shit about. I was a conservative Republican. He was a liberal Democrat. And we were fast friends. We believed in our republic deeply, for which it stands. Listened to American hardcore punk and incessantly read history and literature. Dave and I reconnected recently, and I asked him a ton of questions about All's Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Remark. The conversation drifted through the sands of time, and we discussed the First World War, an unpublished documentary on Albert Speer, and why a German anti-war film from Netflix was a mixed message. How are you, man? I am good. I, I really am, Flash. Currently rereading Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel. I feel like I'm getting schooled again. Finished uh, another World War II history book. What dealt with BT France. And apparently there was a passive resistance of getting Jews out of southern France. And it was in, set in the Protestant village history of huguenots and such and someone sent me this book back to me and said i want you to read this like okay so i sat there let it you know like wine mature and i went wow okay this is this is really cool it's, you know it's a part of this and the thing is that it's a true story and it they did it under the noses of the vichys and also the gestapo but towards when Normandy was occurred then, it's like the Gestapo, as you know better than I do, they said, like, we don't give a shit. We're going out. We're doing everything we can to, you know, we don't care. Well, then they started going after them. But the village had their own foragers. They had their own people who would literally walk them over to Switzerland. And they had this kind of, it was a guerrilla, without being a guerrilla, of passive resistance of sending people out to all these peasants and such. And the peasants would move on the next peasant to the next peasant, and then off they'd go. 
and they were literally saving lives. And it was like, whoa, okay. And that's how to go with this. So I'm happy that I read it. Before that, uh, I read a couple more World War II history books, stuff like that. So I'm on that vamp. Then I watched what you recommended, which I just finished watching, was All Quiet on the Western Front, which I thought was a fantastic movie. All Quiet on the Western Front. You saw it on Netflix. Yes. And? I enjoyed it. I want to reread the book because it's been years since I've read it. Thinking with the movie intact with that. And I'm not looking for the movie to school me. I'm looking for the book to school me. But to have the visual presentation and in someone's interpretation of that visualization of the book and the horrors of war and such. Yes, that helps. It makes me a better person, a more tolerant person to see that. Does that make sense? What, what movies can do here? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when did you read Remark? Oh, dude. Uh, it's probably been 10 years. Okay. Okay. It's, it's one of those, I feel it's a book that you should read before you die, before, you, <laughs> before you're blind. I, I read it, I think, when I was teaching school with you. Okay. It was in the library and they, they cashed it out. Like it was, it was printed in the fifties. Mm-hmm. I think, um, I didn't see the 79 remake. I saw the, I saw the original film when I was getting my, my grad degree. I really actually liked it for something that was, I think it was 1922 or something, 25. Yeah. I really did enjoy it. There's this author named Modris Extens. I think he's British who wrote a book called right of spring. And the first chapter is about Diaghilev and the ballet, the right of spring that he put on in, I think 1912. And I was totally confused. And then the second chapter was about remark and how the novel came out and made him an instant celebrity and of course, Weimar at that time, nobody who had any money wanted to live in Weimar. Uh, he was an instant millionaire and he wanted none of it. He was famous beyond, you know, he was like F. Scott Fitzgerald type famous in Europe. And Extens describes him as the guy who's in the back of the party, stirring his martini with his finger and really not giving a shit about what happened to him and was basically slowly wasting away because of his experience in the war. And I see that. I see that so much in that film, all quiet on Netflix. And uh, I know that, you know, the producer, one of the producers is Daniel Brühl who plays Prince Max von Baden, uh, who's, who's negotiating at the end. Uh, A lot of our, listeners so to speak would probably know him best as the villain in captain america and the winter soldier and brule is from austria but he speaks like six or seven different languages he's one of those europeans you know and i see what he's doing with all quiet he's bringing the anti-war nature of german society he's trying to reinsert it and, and make it part of the culture by showing them uh, their second lowest point in their collective memory. And I think he did it really brilliantly. I think his timing absolutely sucks. 
you know, with leopard tanks leaving almost every day to, to Ukraine now. I wish we had more German pacifists in in uh, Imperial Germany and in National Socialist Germany that were Weimar, and I think the world would be a much better place. But but you know this is this is something that's been going on. This ebb and flow in German cultures. They were a very militant Prussian society. They were led by this aristocracy that worshipped von Clausewitz in the war. They had heroes like uh, Moltke who just planned everything to the nth degree. They worshiped people like Schlieffen who could memorize timetables and, and set them off at, at intervals that, that were just seemingly impossible. And, and then comes Weimar and their society is almost destroyed and they become very anti-war for a very short period of time until that little man with the funny mustache who came up from Linz sells them on this dream that they can be better and the capitulation in 45 leads to this, this very brief period where they know that they've lost the war, but they're not convinced that they were wrong. And it takes a very long time for them to get out of that attitude. And if you, if you look at Germany in the 60s where the society is torn, particularly the Vietnam War has torn German society where they, they are absolutely against the war in Vietnam, but they can't really outrightly piss off their American protectors, who, let's face it, if it weren't for the Fifth Army Corps, there would be no West Berlin. And so they're sourced to sort of ride this needle, even, even unto Reagan, where Reagan, they tell Reagan, get your goddamn missiles out of our country, but keep your army here if you please. It's a, it's a very two-handed thing, but if you, if you look at Germany today, if the modern-day Germany that Merkel has helped create, look where Germany has come in our lifetime. You know, it's a successful liberal democracy, and its films that it's making are films like All Quiet on the Western Front, films that Netflix want to produce and buy and show to everybody, films that like that that make number one weekend after weekend after weekend in a Western audience that doesn't speak German. That's impressive to me. Shows you not everything that uh, comes out of Hollywood is good. Not everything is, uh, it's, I mean, there's, we both know that there's better cinema out in the world, but it does not get the, uh, the attention and stuff, but that, that's the sidebar. But to come back to that, okay, let's, and you, you go back to your earlier comment about the timing. <laughs> but if you're Ukrainian fighting the Russians, you're going, Finally, finally. <laughs> it's this very complex situation where you know Germany has a very bad history with Ukraine. Germany murdered a lot of Ukrainians during the war. And that was after there was this sort of push and pull where the, the, the Ukrainians had a nationalist side that they, that they formulated to get rid of the Soviets. And they sided with the Nazis. And one of their biggest heroes, post-war heroes, is one of these guys who sided with the Nazis to get the Soviets out. And then it backfired on them. And then the, the Nazis were shameless about using Ukrainians to do their dirty work. A lot of their ethnic cleansing, a lot of their genocide work were, were done by local fascist militias that were 100% Ukrainian. And the, this, the 
backswing of that when the Soviets came through. The Soviets were shooting these people left and right, you know, and the Ukrainian uh, nationalist movement was put into a coffin until 1990 when all of a sudden they were they were given an independence that most of them actually didn't want even at that time. And to watch a Russian film or Ukrainian film try to explore these topics for the next century is going to be very interesting because all all quiet on the Western Front is how modern-day Germany is synthesizing and going through their own process of dealing with their own past and putting that past onto film as they see it, see the First World War now. So it'll be interesting to see how the Ukrainians deal with that in the future. You and I, for what we do for a living, for what for our education such that it, for a lot of the individuals, common man, blue collar or, or people don't have the background and you have a better background for what, what I do with that, we're sensitive to that. My question is, how do we let people know, how do we turn people on and say, hey, holy shit, history's repeating itself. It's coming. I mean, it's just, it's just, how do you, I mean, we're, we're, I'm seeing a replay in a sense, Weimar, Germany, Spain, you know, the 1930s and stuff of that, you know, what we've got here in the country and stuff. But the movie, All Quiet on Western Front comes out, should be going, hey, folks, it's not just drama, but there is all these other messages we need to pay attention to. Absolutely. And, you know, I would be interested in there is no such thing as a part two. But I would be interested in another film by the same writers and producers about the sailors in Kiel who said enough of this shit. I'm not going to go die for a nation that's already dead. Mm -hmm. And about what was his name with the Social Democrats who came down to Kiel, met with the sailors and then the sailors themselves dispersed all over the coast of Germany and set up Soviets and the German government panics and they I kick out the, the they kick out the czar in the span of like two weeks yeah. and then revolutions just flooding the countryside. And then you have states like Bavaria, like we're taking off and we're forming our own, you know, Soviet Republic of Bavaria. This was a very dangerous time in Germany in, in late 1918, early 1919, and into that summer. Things were bad. It was inches, inches away from something very, very red, something very, very Bolshevik. I would love to see a movie about that. And then with a, with a totally different cast, with a totally different story. Again, not a sequel. I don't know what you would call it. And then a third movie that runs... Uh, roughly you know, the early days of the Weimar, say 1921, and the finale is the pooch okay. in 1923. Yeah. And you were talking about history repeating itself. I, I thought for about six months there uh, after the election of 20, all the way into that summer, I thought very much there, that we were looking very close to Weimar. I thought our Republic was weak. And I thought that we had all these safeguards in place that we don't have. I thought that we had laws that wound up being just traditions. And I was really fucking scared about losing my country 
to a bunch of people who would quite honestly like to see you and me in a ditch. And it's not because we're both straight white males. It's because we're collaborators. That's right. And you pick out the ones who don't look like you. And then you pick out the ones who are nefarious because they do look like you, but they're still different. And then you pick out the ones who are like you, but think differently. That's right. And we are the third list. That's right. We fit category number three, my friend. And so when, when people call me, you know, woke, because I think racism is wrong. People call me a liberal because I think civil rights applies to everyone, regardless of color. You know, people uh, think I've betrayed my conservative beliefs, my libertarian upbringing. Because I think, I think that these you know, families shouldn't be separated on the border, regardless of where they came from or what they're doing. You know, we're losing touch with a lot of what makes us American. And to see it painted um, so blindly a different color is very strange. But it all starts with a trauma that the collective country goes through, kind of like what you see in All's Quiet on the Western Front. It's that trauma that puts Germany through this period and softens the public up so that it can accept something like national socialism. And I don't know what our collective trauma is in America. I really don't. Was it the election of 2016? Was it the collective trauma of living four years under Trump? I don't know because clearly almost half the country didn't think that was trauma. Half the country thought that that was the most amazing America had ever been. People did that in Germany. People did that in uh, Japan. They, they did it in Spain. They did it, did it in fascist countries. I think if democracies will move quicker, faster to a fascist state rather than to a liberal libertarian state. I mean, you could make the argument that Germany is more of a democracy than America is right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is. I mean... I'll be honest with you. We have cops getting away with murder, regardless of the, the victim's color. And that badge, that uniform, that gun protects them. It gives them not a license to kill, but it protects them if they kill. And we they have. And someone brought up uh, in the media that are we just going to get used to uh, people of color getting killed by cops that it's not as bad a problem as we thought it was? And, you know, it's, 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 I, I hope not. Um, but I've got to think that those cops families, the cops are very themselves. They wake up early in the morning, late at night after sleeping for a couple of hours. And I've got to think their conscience has just got to be impinging on them going, Oh shit, what did I do? Right. But they can, snowball themselves, snowball perhaps their families or their communities and, and say, well, yeah, it was my duty, it's my job, I'm sorry, you know, I'm going to get away with, with murder. Oh, boy. So, come back to this. Okay. I want to bring this up. It's in line with what you're saying. Was that, how about, was it 1933 when 
Hitler set in motion, he assassinated his opponents, his political opponents. Oh, it was, the, it was the 1934. It was the it was the uh, the you know, the night of the long knives when he went after Rome and the SA leadership. How about a movie on that? Oh, absolutely. I, I saw one. God, it was 20 something years ago or more. Uh, David Warner, the British actor, he played Reinhard Heydrich. Heydrich was the one who was handing out the cards at Gestapo headquarters to individuals. Go kill this person. Go kill this person. This one only gets arrested. This one you don't kill on site. You take and you interrogate him, and then you kill him. You know he was in charge of the the person by person coup. I can't remember the name of the movie. It was a television movie, but it was very very well. You know it looked like cabaret with Liza Minnelli, like it was that good for TV. I would, but I would go with a, a film version of that. I don't think that there's enough films about the war. I don't think that there's enough films about the German experience. I've got tied into it because my father was a combat veteran. As you know, that's how I tied into it. But the, the longer we go on and the older I get, I see all these parallels between us and Weimar, National Socialist Germany, and what you see in Russia, where Putin has created this capitalist empire with these oligarchs that are in fear of him and serve him out of that fear. Well, that's that's exactly how the Nazi cabinet worked. Everyone was slitting each other's throat trying to make Hitler happy. And it got to the point where you could intuit what yeah. you were supposed to do. You didn't need a signature. They actually had a word for it. It was a Fuhrerbefehl, a Fuhrer order. Even Adolf Eichmann said in his trial in 1960, it had the, the force of law. And when you've got the president of the United States picking up the phone and saying, So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,000 780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. Mr. Secretary, was the president here asking you for exactly what he wanted, one more vote than his opponent? What I knew is that we didn't have any votes to find. We'd continue to look. Uh, we what the fuck do people think that is? That is a Fuhrerbefehl. That's exactly what that is. And he's not even trying to hide it. No, he's it. And there are people who are who are looking the other way to support that. I mean, it's, it's see the same parallels what people did for Hitler did for Trump. Yes. And now, how Hollywood is going to cover that? Like, I remember what twenty twenty five years ago they did a movie about Reagan on TV, and I think James Brolin played Reagan. I, I watched it. It was actually. It was actually pretty good, despite the fact that, as you know, I am a fan of Reagan. But I, I really did enjoy the movie. I don't think it, Reagan gets enough credit for being in a room with Gorbachev saying stuff like, let's get rid of all the nukes. What's, what's stopping us from doing that? I will give you the Star Wars program if you say yes to getting rid of the nukes. You know, Reagan was ready just to give away the keys to the kingdom. But regardless, I, I thought that film was, was very good in some ways. And in other ways, it was just a license, just like everything else. How would you go about constructing a Hollywood narrative over what happened between 2016 and 2020? I have no clue. How do you begin to make a movie about January 6th when 40% of this country very clearly thinks that the 2020 election was stolen? I don't know how you begin to market a film 
in which you know 40% of your intended audience is not interested at all in seeing it because they think, well, you're a bunch of liberal homos who live in California anyway, making content to indoctrinate my children and turn them all uh, transgender. You know, it's that type of mentality. I don't know if Hollywood could ever do that. And I expect that what we're going to go through the next four to eight years is until we know that Trump will not run again, until he is dead or he is 90, right? Until we get to that point, Hollywood is going to act like the Vietnam War. We're not even going to talk about it. From 1965 to 1973, we're not even going to talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. It may take future generations to to write the books, to create the movies, to sit down and have conversations about what our parents or grandparents did. Much like the Germans could talk about Nazis and, you know, have experience and, and they had some distance, but yet still had connections, familial bond, blood with that, still discussing that. Um, what happened in Germany, I like to think all the way back, what, what I know about ancient Greece, because the Greek city-states, they were not all democratic. We had fascist city-states. We also had democratic states that capitulated to demagogues and what fell and but then years many years later came back up and produced that my fear is that yes the u.s goes through this the demagogue we may have seen our first true demagogue we may see another one desantis or someone like him which desantis scares the shit out of me because he's a smart trump uh, hopefully he can only just play it in florida and can't do anything else outside of florida but that's another conversation for another day so bringing this all together here is that um, my, I don't, I'm scared. I, I, we're not paying attention to the literature, to the movies. We're not paying attention to the conversations. But then again, bad to the liberals when the, when the liberals prevent someone from talking on a college campus, from writing a piece of literature or so with that, that's wrong. Bring them on. Let them talk. Uh, let them. I mean, we have to hear the opposing viewpoints because your viewpoint is only an opinion. It doesn't mean it's necessarily right. Uh, and you should not prevent them because, again, if you prevent yourself, it's kind of like the old thing. When the, remember when the the Nazis used to go wanted to do protests in Skokie, Illinois, and Skokie, Illinois had all those Jewish neighborhoods. <laughs> yeah, you got to let them do it. You got to let them go protest. And you hopefully it's the middle of the winter and they freeze to death in the streets. Yeah, yeah. okay. And then don't go. Yeah. You know, yeah. let the clan walk through your town and don't go. Yeah. And let them go. They, they want attention. They're the attention deficits. I mean, they're, just, they're right. sure they're like, they're I'm, I'm very, you know, I, I'm a very, very big supporter of the First Amendment. And, I don't, I don't, there are very few topics I think that are off, off the map, things that you, that are not up for discussion. You know, I remember being in college and there was a notion that we were studying that, you know, no one was allowed to say anything bad or disingenuous about the Holocaust. 
you know, there's this, this, this idea among some people on the far right of, well, you know, you can't say anything about, about the Holocaust at all. You're not allowed to have any type of controversy. Well, that, that's just frankly not true. There's a lot of stuff about the Holocaust that is, is really controversial, and scholars debate it all the time. That's why you have so many books written about the Holocaust. The one thing that is off the table about the Shoah is that it happened. Period. It happened. That is not up for discussion. And anyone claiming that is a denier, just like David Irving, and they are a denialist, and they do not have room in this discussion. How are you going to have a reasonable argument about the actual effect of the Vonsi Conference or how many Jews actually did die in Babi Yar or the effect of von Reichenau's uh, edict inside his own German army headquarters about Jews and assisting the Wehrmacht, assisting the SS with the execution of Jews. You can't have those legitimate controversies, those legitimate conversations, if you are de facto not admitting that it yes. happened in the first That's place. True. Okay, now I'm going to draw a parallel in U.S. history. Genocide of American Indians and slavery. Okay. Uh, I tell people... <laughs> I'm not afraid of saying it, but I, I see the different reactions that, yeah, our country was built on uh, genocide and, and uh, slavery, black people. You know, it's not just genocide of Native Americans of that. We put them on reservations. We, we use chemical warfare. Uh, we exploited their land to extract the resources that built this country. By the way, the U.S. Capitol was built with black labor. Our U.S. economy was based on an agrarian culture that was incorporated slaves. And I'm going, I'm, I'm throwing rocks at everybody. But when you look at it, we did. So why is that controversial? It's true. It's true. But people, it's, I don't want to hear about it. It's, it, it, it's, or we did a scene. Well, the Indians were like, we had them outnumbered. I mean, <laughs> we had, it's, 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 game's over. We stole the Black Hills. Uh, when Custer was killed, it's like, well, you know, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> it's, uh, but he was massacred. Yeah, but we also massacred Indians prior to that. Battle of Washita. I mean, we can go to the Sand Creek Massacre. We can, uh, Grand's, well, it's a massacre. It was more just a blow up. But my point in, in all that is, you know, whose lens of history are we are reviewing that? Well, that I have this debate with a, I have, Three male nephews who are all super sharp, very good. One, though, I fear will become a fascist later in his life. White male. And I keep educating him to look at other people and stuff like that. And his father hammers away. And the guy's grown up with a roof over his head in a middle-class family. So he hasn't understood what it means. And then he's bred. He's, he's sharp and stuff like that. But he has a very right of center view of U.S. history. And it's like, dude, all these other people contributed. We did bad things to minorities, to people of that. Well, this is all made in progress. Oh, shit. Exploitation is progress? Hmm. Right. Yeah. Quite the Western Front. Yes. That would be fantastic to show in a European, U.S., history class. I'd even show it in economics, so I was still teaching it. I could tie it in. 
that would be so good. You know, you and I used to show Band of Brothers back in Houston. And I'm wondering if today that that would be controversial in a high school history course. Back then, fantastic. I'd be fired today. Yeah, I think it would be too. Because I'd probably have the kids read uh, excerpts from The Guns of August. Guns of August. I'd, I'd, I'd have them still reading that. And, and someone would say, it's this liberal hearsay. No, it's a sleeper plan. It was not liberal. <laughs> it was an anti-war book. Yeah. Uh, just like All's Quiet on the Western Front is an anti-war. But it was banned in Germany for 25 years. Yes. You know, Remark couldn't go uh, sell his own book in his own country. Uh, it was just sad. No prophet has honor in his, in his own country. That I've been rereading Tim O'Brien, who was is I think he's still alive, uh, writer. Yes, the things they carried, uh, Vietnam War veteran. I think four of his books upstairs. And I've reread the things they carried and um, a rumor of war. No, no, that's Philip Caputo. I'm sorry, uh, that came before that. But the first yeah. chapter of the things they carried, I hear on NPR people read out loud. And to hear that rather than just read it, it's like, wow. Yeah, Philip Caputo, good writer as well, too. Well, Caputo actually I, admitted to committing war crimes. And he served, he served time in, in Leavenworth for it. And then he wrote a book about it. And it's... Uh, it's it's for an American to admit that is yeah it's pretty loud. Yes. Increasingly finding it hard to uh, focus on uh, reading. Like I used to read twenty five pages a day, and it's been I don't know months since I've been able to do that. It's just my my attention deficit has got so bad. It's extraordinarily hard to focus are you listening to podcasts i listen to a lot of podcasts and uh, when i can audiobooks but i i really used to just enjoy sitting down and reading a book for as long as it took me and it's very hard to do that now um, i did i did get this for a christmas present leather bound edition <laughs> rise and fall gold letter with a with a pool on it oh and just great type i've already read it of course but this will be my second trip through and instantly when when i had a family member that gave that to me and instantly when i saw it i thought i can't wait to show that to kinnaman he's gonna love it yes finish reading all quiet in the western front excellent the problem is that after Paul leaves his home and he goes back to the front you know he's going to die and I reread it knowing it but you don't want him to but he has to it's a tough read and I think the author his tone changes because the fighting and the scene where he's in the, the foxhole with his enemy changes the tone of the book. 
you recall when he, he tries to kill the, the Frenchman or the American and then tries to save him. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a great book, but, it, but it's tough to read. Yeah. Well, if I remember correctly, um, by the time that he makes it home, Paul is completely defeated by that point. Yeah. And I think he talks to a, a class at the school that he used to go to. I don't remember if that's in the, in the book. I'm kind of having some thoughts about that. And that's not in the film that recently was on Netflix. That's right. And I was wondering why they, they excluded that because I think I remember that being in the 1930 version of the film. And more importantly, there's a, there's another scene cut out, which I don't understand, which is Paul and his friend. I think it's Fritz. Is this, <laughs> I don't remember what his name is. They're sitting on a commode talking. And in the novel, there's, there's like a, the, it gets out of control. Like it gets very scatological very quickly. And I don't, I don't know particularly what the, the point was for Remark to put that in there, but that became, a campaign against the book. Um, the writer I was telling you about before, Modrus Sexton, who wrote the book, The Rite of Spring, who had that chapter on Raymark, he said that he did a review of all of these, these literature reviews in, when the book came out in the, in the 20s. And every single negative review of the book focused on the fact that there was this scene where they, they were both getting dirty in the, in, in the latrine. And so isn't that interesting? It was like people... People couldn't take it. It was like people focusing on the two pages of Lady Chatterley's Lover and not really reading the other 498 pages of it. You know, I mean, that's how things do when when people think of uh, Ulysses. I mean, are they really thinking, you know, it's the scandal that always permeates through. I get it. You know, I've I've written things in my books that um, are not for the faint of heart. And there is some same sex going on. And I, I know that when I'm writing it, that there's going to be some person that's going to pick up that book and read it, whether it's dating Virginia or, or Buffalo Saint or whatever. And they're going to pick out the one scene in which the two main characters are screaming at each other fully naked, you know, and, or the, the one or two lines that get really graphic and that's going to overshadow shadow the other four or 500 pages of the book. That's the risk that you take. The film didn't go there for a very specific reason. It would have been very difficult to film something like that, I think. But I, I, I don't remember it being like a very powerful moment in the novel. But I, I found that the two guys sitting on the latrine in the film talking about their life, I found that very, very fitting. It's just part of the male experience. And particularly back then where there, was, there were fewer walls and there was less privacy, and particularly in the army, there's no privacy. So the end of of remark. How did you walk away from it? How did you like it? I'm glad it ended, but yet I'm not did not want it to end. I wanted him to to survive, to tell his story. He goes home and finds a trade, finds a skill, raises a family. It he survives even though he has the horrors of the horrors of war, but 
all his buddies were killed. He was the last. And it was fitting. However, it was in our October of 1918. It's a good way to end a book. But personally, I wanted to survive. Well, it was just all so needless. And particularly for Germany, it was needless. It was needless for Germany to get into the war. It was needless for Germany to win it. Uh, there was no, there was truly no point. If you look at the outbreak of the war, because there had been a war in the Balkans twice before in the previous 10 years, if I remember correctly, it was like the first Balkan war and the second Balkan war. And then you had effectively what was going to be the third Balkan war. And, and what would have happened? Uh, Austria-Hungary would have dominated Serbia and, and it would have been an oppressive state for a lot of people, but we're not talking levels like uh, 1945. We're not talking a complete genocide. We're talking about the political and military domination of of a minority state. Uh, and that's happened all throughout the centuries. There's, there's nothing out of whack about that at all. Uh, what people couldn't see was that the 20th century was going to be the downslide of imperialism and colonialism, and it was going to be the disappearance of those modes and the early part of the 20th century, people are trying to ramp it up. And that's what Austria-Hungary was trying to do. Serbia would have lost. And it had Russia not gotten involved, it would have been better for everybody. But it was because Russia got involved that dictated everyone else falling into line. It was uh, the autocrat, the czar saying, I'm not going to stand for this another Slav state falling to a, you know, Catholic Western uh, proto-Latin autocracy. I'm not, I'm not going to have it. And because of that, um, everything then was dictated. Well, if the czar's getting in and the czar's army is four times larger than everyone else in all of Europe, then we have to, to mobilize. But if Germany had just done nothing, Austria-Hungary would have been uh, squared off against the Russians, maybe, maybe defeated, maybe, you know, the, the Russian army's record against the Germans in September, October, November of 1914 is not stellar as we all know. And in 1915, they did, they did marginally better against the Austrian Hungarians, but just marginally better, not very Brusilov did a really good job, but the, you know, the idea that the Russians ever conquering Austria is, is laughable. There was no reason for the war to be that big. Millions of people dead. And at the end of it, why did Germany get into the war? So Austria-Hungary could have Serbia? That's why Germany got into the war? Really? That's the small fact of it. That's the micro fact of it. The larger fact of it is that Germany and her allies were making a play to become a competitor empire to Great Britain and France. And Great Britain and France were not going to have. That is the big picture. That is what was going on. Britain and France were not going to have a third great empire. They saw Austria-Hungary's grab uh, as a way to solidify this uh, natural resource coming up from the Middle East that was powering the Navy. Germany needed that resource, and the Turks were going to give it. Britain and France blocked it. Therein lies almost everything. You know, you look at the campaign in Gallipoli. Great movie, by the way, Mel Gibson. Campaign in Gallipoli had all these lists of goals that were just insane. Um, you know, we're going to land at Gallipoli. We're going to cut the Dardanelles. And then we're going to march 50 miles up and open the, the straits. And then we're going to bring in the Navy. And we're going to bombard Constantinople. And we're going to knock 
uh, Turkey out of the war. We're going to open up the Bosporus and we're going to we're going to feed Russia supplies. You know, anytime Russia needs supplies, it's in trouble. You're going to cut off this Berlin to Baghdad uh, railway that's bringing oil up into Europe for for the Kaiser's ships. Right. Why does the Kaiser, why does the, the German high seas fleet, why do they need oil? Why do, why do they need a fleet? Why do they need capital battleships? And it's because the Kaiser wants to compete with Great Britain. And the Battle of Jutland proves that. That was what it was all about. The BBC had this fantastic series of documentaries. They released them all in the podcast. It came out with the 100th anniversary of the First World War. So in 2014, they started doing this. And they did it all through 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018. Actually, back when things were moderately acceptable in the Russian Federation. In 2014, the BBC actually went to St. Petersburg and had an open forum in a hall full of English-speaking Russians. And they brought these scholars from Germany, uh, from, from Russia, from Great Britain, and they had a roundhouse discussion about the opening of the war and what it all meant. And at the end of the discussion, I will never forget this. At the end of the discussion, they, the moderator from the BBC asked this panel, what does it matter? What does it matter now how the war started and how the war ended? It was 100 years ago. And that moderator walked into a fucking trap. It was almost as if that moderator didn't understand what he was asking. And the historian who was from Great Britain uh, was a was a woman from Oxford, I'm sure. And she said, you cannot weasel out of the responsibility of millions. This war did not have to happen, and it cost millions of lives, and it is Germany's fault. The reason the war got so large is because Germany decided that it wanted to be an empire. And everyone else said no. You can only blame the second and third and fourth and fifth person in the fight so much. You know, are you really going to blame the United States for starting the First World War? Come on. It does matter how the war started. It does matter that the Kaiser had an agenda. It does matter that Germany was on a route uh, to where it led to in, in May of 1945. The Treaty of Versailles was just a diversion. It was a speed bump, a really big speed bump as far as they were concerned. And it took their annihilation uh, to get them to drop that dream. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of people died. And, and I think that that is the, the beauty of All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, the, the novel really breaks through the big picture and shows you that real people paid the price. Real people died and suffered horribly because of these decisions. You going to reread the book? Um, if I can focus. What's, ne- um, what's, what's the next book for you? I'm halfway through Gun Germs of Steel, enjoying it. And right now it's dealing with language development and two principal areas in the world. A language was developed in meaning that describing symbols to represent sound, 
alphabet. So the big question is, did other societies blueprint and change or through some form of simulation create a language? Okay, there's distinctions between the two according to the writer. And his belief is that it was blueprinted. So each succeed, if they were smart enough, could build upon that. And through hundreds of years, some did, some did not. It's a real simple way that I'm explaining it, but it causes you to think, okay, how did language really evolve? Give me an example. In Sumeria, one of two areas. The other is Mesoamerica that had a, a language and started using what we call pictures or pictographs, assigning sounds to them. And then they started recording basic things like, I mean, a season, herds of cattle, exchanges of possessions. And this grew and was actually put in some form of hard evidence, the clay tablets or so. So then you have pe people who are traveling through, pick up on this, take the ideas back home and realize that, hey, they're smarter than us. They're wealthier than us. What can we do to be like them? So then you have the problem. What is spoken one language is lost in translation. I'm in the middle of his section, which is three or four chapters on language development. Prior to that, it was on germs. How germs, what he believes originates, for example, when we domesticate animals. A disease makes a jump from an animal that's been domesticated by a human, in which the human becomes the new host and propagates and becomes an epidemic. Well, that's timely. He's going to move into eventually what geography affords and negates people. And what he's doing, looking at worldwide, He's looking at the, the latitudes because the latitudes around the world offer people either greater or less advantages to adapt. And it wasn't until the Europeans started going into the America that not only were they spreading germ warfare, but they were also taking the natural resources, food, and then the minerals and stuff, going back to Europe and learned how to use them and use them to their advantage. Henceforth, they come back to the Amer Americas or go to Africa and subjugate those, those areas as colonies. Right. You take World War One, World War Two, kind of a microsm, what would have been going on for hundreds of years. Those advantages, Germany in particular, World War Two proficient, but then again, it, it just got beat down by, that, by the Allies. I think it was American historians said, there is no more horrific war machine than a, than a democracy. But a democracy has to choose to be, become that war, war machine. And we saw that in World War II. I, mean, I, I kind of see the point. Like if you look at the early Roman Republic and how they, they – that was a form of democracy. And the Romans certainly as a republic, they, they tried to conquer as much as they possibly could. Yes. You know, the, the Punic Wars being a prime example of that. Italy – Particularly Florence was a democracy for a time, and you know the, those states were all warring each other quite quite heavily. I'd like to think of, of democracy as as a certainly more peaceful than what we've had in the past. Uh, but of course, the 20th century has been the bloodiest century probably since the Mongols, and, and in terms of the lives lost, probably probably four or five times that. I'm just thinking, just okay. because the population was was just so much smaller a thousand years ago. Mm -hmm. So I want to think that democracy is better in those terms, but I, but I see your point. There were pacifists in the second world war. 
Mm-hmm. There were people that d- did not think that it was worth fighting. Democracy in the 1930s was dying. What restored it was America's intervention into the Second World War. And not just not just the Second World War, but specifically our involvement in Europe, which was actually unnecessary because Pearl Harbor was the reason why we were involved in the war. And if Hitler had not declared war, we would never have gone to Europe. We'd never, other than Lend-Lease, we never would have been involved in in the ETO at all. Our beef to pick was with Japan, and 16.5 million men, instead of being divided the world over, would have been thrown into the Pacific. If you look at the the countries that we were directly placed over, Germany, Austria, France certainly became more of a democracy after the war than it was before the war. Japan is a shining example, I think, along with Germany, in terms of uh, from an authoritarian state to a democracy. And we're in the middle of supporting a war right now that's all about democracy. Pacifism is high among the far left. There are wackos on the far right that don't want to give Ukraine any more money. And I don't understand it. It's their fascination with with the the Federation and Putin. And I, I simply don't understand it. Ukraine is the front line of democracy. If if everyone laid down their arms, if the Ukrainians just quit, there would be no Ukraine. Yeah. It's it's that simple. And if the Russians quit, they just go home and Ukraine exists. Mm-hmm. If you if you apply that to everything that you do, you know, what would have happened if we just chose not to go to Europe? Without Lend Lease, the Russians would have folded and Britain would have made a deal. And we would be living with some successor state today that would be a descended nightmare from whoever took over after Hitler passed away at the age of 75 or whatever, whether it was Himmler or Heydrich or some form of the man in a high castle. That's what we would be dealing with. Who started the First World War does matter. Yes. What Remark went through matters because Remark is a victim of all of that. Yeah. And you go back to Jared Diamond's book. That's a book about victims of modern industry and modern culture. Exploitation. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And who is being exploited in the war in Ukraine right now? Ukrainians. But then there are a lot of. A lot of Russians. A lot of Russians being exploited. A lot of dead Russians. Yeah. For what? For what? Just like Remark. For what? Yeah. And that's the parallel we can draw there. Okay. I wanted to bring you on tonight because I had to tell you this amazing story. Okay. Which I, I heard two weeks ago, a, an acquaintance of mine named Mike White with the Projection Booth podcast. He had this guest on his show, and his name was Andrew Birkin. Mike has people on his show that just astounds me. He's had William Friedkin on his show, the director of The French Connection and uh, The Exorcist and Cruising and Deal of the Century, which I'm sure he'd rather forget about. But the man has done amazing things. He's directed operas in Italy, you know, it's shocking. He had Miguel Ferrer on his shows, actors that would blow your mind. 
So he had Andrew Birkin. I've never even heard of Andrew Birkin. I'm not even going to be ashamed to say I had no idea who this man is. I'm looking up on his IMDb while he's being, Bob Mike is interviewing him. He's got four credits. I've never seen this stuff. He starts talking about it on the show, and I'm thinking, this sounds fascinating. I don't know how I'm going to find these pictures to watch them. And I start looking at his, uh, his screenplay credits. The Messenger, the story of Joan of Arc, the movie that came out in 98 that Luc Besson did. Mm-hmm. I keep looking back. I would see some, some stuff that's kind of uh, religiously oriented, you know, uh, King David, the Thief of Baghdad. But the big one that stands out is The Name of the Rose, Connery yes, picture on the Umberto Eco book. That was yes. a huge hit. I, sh- I don't know box office wise, but as far as its impact into the world of intellectualism, that book and that movie hit pretty hard. He's talking about that. And then... Mike starts to ask him questions about Albert Speer. And then for the next 20 minutes, my mind was blown. I just had to tell you this story. So he's on a, so he's a screenwriter. He works directly for, for Robert Evans. Robert Evans was the head of Paramount studios for about 15 years. He's the husband of Ali McGraw. Okay. Left him for Steve McQueen. Uh, Robert Evans was a power hitter, man. The Godfather was his idea to rope in Puzo and put him in a room with Coppola and give Coppola like no choice. You got to do this movie. Um, the getaway, the Godfather part two, the conversation, you know, he gave money to Zotrope, you know, and he was on a roll in the seventies. Evans was, he wrote a book about his whole life called the kid stays in the picture, which was an expose on Hollywood. And he finally got caught with, I think 30 keys of Coke or something. And they just ended his career and he was lucky to not spend a day in jail, but Anyway, Evans sends Andrew Birkin to Germany to scout for a movie. And Birkin is kind of this guy that you want on your production team. He's a screenwriter. He's an assistant director, an AD, as they say in the industry. He fills a whole bunch of hats. He's, he's a fixer. You know, he does all these, these jobs that in behind the camera that are just so very important or the movie doesn't get made. He actually doesn't have a whole lot of directing credits and a whole lot of screenwriting credits, probably due to this this nature of his job. So he's on the plane. He's reading, a, this is like 1970, 71, maybe 72, and he's reading this uh, Der Spiegel in English on the Lufthansa plane on the way over to Germany. And in it is this excerpt from Albert Speer's newly published book, Inside the Third Reich, which is a huge hit in America. It's a huge hit in Germany. He's fascinated. This was... <laughs> This was the last living person who actually had contact with Adolf Hitler. Yeah. And yeah. he's eating it up. He gets into Berlin. He calls Robert Evans and says, I read this amazing article in Der Spiegel about Albert Speer. It, it would be a great screenplay, I think, if you, if you put something together about the man. Uh, just an idea. And then he goes to sleep. Well, apparently, I don't, you know, Robert Evans apparently got up in the middle of the night or got this telegram or got this phone message or dispatch called him from Paramount down in, in Hollywood or something. Cause he calls Birkin up and wakes him up in the middle of the night and says, this is a great idea. And as soon as you're done scouting, I want you to stay in Germany. I want you to go down there and talk with him. And Birkin was like, talk with who? And Evan says, Spare. I want you to talk to Spare. And Birkin's, you sort of hear his voice during the interview saying, uh, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, right? But you, you, you want me to, to, to 
go down and sit in a room with an actual Nazi? <laughs> like, like, like not not one on TV. Yeah, not yeah. not one on Hogan's Heroes. You you want me to to sit in a room with a guy who wore a rope on his his arm and and actually attended rallies and had a card in his wallet that said National Socialist German Workers Party? Like you're not serious. And Evan says I'm I'm deadly serious about this. So he did. And Evans gives him the direction, not just to write a screenplay, Dave, but write a three-hour cinematic epic, which tells Speer's story of the rise and fall of the Third Reich. We're talking like a 300 to 350-page script at a page a minute. This is going to have an intermission. It's going to be shot in... Panavision 70, Technicolor. God knows who they're going to catch. Who, who wants to play Albert Speer in a movie? I have no clue. But this is the way that it's going. Birkin spends weeks in Germany interviewing Speer every day, writing the script every night, and then going over the sh- script with Speer, notating what scenes, what did you say with Hitler at this time, and then trying to sculpt scenes so that they tell a coherent story. And apparently Evans thinks this is amazing. This is what we're going to do in 1974 or whatever year it was. It was heading down to 40 hours of interviews, Dave, 40 hours of interviews that no one's ever heard. Wow. It's not on the public record. It's not in university. Andrew Birkin recorded these and turned them into Paramount Pictures because it wasn't a history project. It was a research project for a film. So Paramount still has them. Paramount still has them. And they're sitting on it. They're sitting on it. And it has been a project that has been in and out of development for the last 40 years. So who, okay, to take this elite now, with this, who would be a director today that could make that movie who would you do it with i have no clue i I mean somebody with great experience and who can stomach this type of because spare's legacy is very complicated of course yes i read a book by gita serini probably about 10 or 15 years ago gita serini's has a background kind of like hannah arendt where she was kind of helping out with the refugee situation and then she she uh, moved, I, I think, to Great Britain, and she, for a long time, you know, she was uh, she was in a support group. She helped a support group of the children of former Nazis, and Martin Bormann's kid was, was in this group, and Himmler's daughter was in this group. You know, there were a lot of, like, very high-ranking Nazis uh, whose kids grew up, and, I, you know, I can't, I can't deal with what my parents participated in, and they, she helped lead the support group. She wrote a book about Speer. It was called His Battle for Truth. And this was the sticking point in Birkin's script. Hitler had a conference in Poznan, I think, around November of 1943. And he invited all the Gauleiters out there, all the high-ranking members of the SS, and all the high-party officials, which is why the Gauleiters were there. And Speer was there, all the cabinet officials. And he told them, flat out in the speech, we are currently getting rid of the Jews. This is what we are doing. And the reason he did that, because this was after the Battle of Kursk, things were going very badly. D-Day was just around the corner. 
and they knew that there was a buildup in Britain and Hitler wanted everyone to know what was up because he wanted them involved so that they couldn't say later, I didn't know. This is kind of like Cortez burning his ships when he reached the new world. They have to fight harder because now they all know and they're all complicit in war crimes. Speer was at this meeting. Gita Serini, in the book, she says, hey, well, you were at that meeting. And Speer at first is like, well, I thought that I did for a number of years. People told me that I was at that meeting, so obviously you knew about the Holocaust, et cetera, et cetera. He's like, well, I, I wasn't at that meeting. I've, I've got an affidavit from this person that said that, you know, that weekend I was somewhere else. He's like, I don't remember being at that meeting. But I can tell you what, where I wasn't, and I wasn't at Poznan because I would remember, remember being in a room with 650 other people talking about the Holocaust. Like, I would definitely remember that. Serini hymns and haws about it. She says basically that he was there and he, he had a mental break at, shortly after that. He actually went into the hospital and uh, he was just, ex he suffered from great exhaustion. And I think he was, in, and this is during the war, obviously. This is like four or five months as the Minister of Munitions. 14 million people in Germany work for Albert Speer, and he's, the man is not at work. He's in a hospital convalescing. And it was probably that mental break, that breakdown that he had, that psychotic episode, was probably due to the fact that he was at this meeting and, and Hitler was just so brazen about what was going on. He denied it, of course, uh, even though Sherini pretty much proved that he was there. Well, this came up during, during Birkin's interview. He was denied Speer. it again. Birkin just was trying to, like, look, dude, you— we can't, we can't pussyfoot around this. We've got to answer this because it's going to constantly come up. And Sperry's basically like, I don't, I don't have an answer for you. I don't have an answer for you. This woman whose name, I'm sorry, escapes me. That would be Vanessa Lapa in the documentary is called Sperry Goes to Hollywood. Put together a documentary. She got her hands on Paramount's audio tape of the interview. And she spliced together the audio tape. And it's Birkin and Sperry talking the whole time about this great controversy. The project has been put together. It's been edited. The woman is an Israeli filmmaker and she can't sign a deal. She can't ink anything for, for distribution because the, the topic is, is so hot. Like nobody, nobody wants to distribute this. They don't want to stream it. They don't want to put it out on DVD. Uh, so it's just sitting in the can for now. Uh, waiting for, you know, a film festival. It's, I think it's been two years and the reason they can't, find a distributor for it is because Birkin has stated on the record several times that some of the interview tapes have been altered. And in his opinion, it paints Spare guiltier than he actually is. Do you think and, that's true? Well, you know, I battle with that. I mean, there, this whole, this whole topic and the fact that it involves Hollywood is, is kind of crazy. Birkin makes this very convincing argument that, that he became very convinced with, which is, you know, those guys were working in silos. Speer's job was to build bunkers and and pump out artillery rounds and tanks and et cetera, et cetera. And, and he was obviously aware that he was using slave labor because that's why he was in jail for 25 years. And I think there's no doubt about that. The man was guilty. And that was what the tribunal decided was, was his time to serve. And that's what he did. And he didn't complain about it at all. And he was the only one in the dock in the original Nuremberg trial. He was the only one who stood up and said, this is horrible. This, this is far beyond my imagination. This is indefensible. And I'm not going to stand up here and say that it's justifiable in any way because it's not. And Speer had decided on the stand to take the blame for it. And he had told the tribunal, look, I didn't know 
about this, but it doesn't matter because I'm a member of the government and I'm responsible. So do with my fate what you will. And that, that and that's where Speer left it. And the tribunal decided, and then that's what happened. That's very hard to get around. It's very, it's very hard for people to say, well, because to Speer, he admitted it. It's kind of a, it's kind of a cop out. It's kind of like, I didn't know, but it doesn't matter. That's not saying he knew, yeah. right? And there are a lot of people that have very persuading and very convincing arguments that he did know. But Birkin's entire point was couldn't prove it one way or the other. The way the machine was set up, did Speer have any idea what was going on in Luftwaffe? Come on. Come on. You think Himmler had any idea what was going on in Luftwaffe? No. Of course not. Did anyone, any one of those jackasses know what was going on in the Abwehr with Canaris' iron fist? On counterintelligence? No, of course not. It's it's completely conceivable. It may not be true, but to paint Speer definitely as as guilty without having that in context, Sorry. I don't know if I would make a documentary about that. Okay, make a documentary. Okay, how about all right? Say uh, then put it in the documentary just to what you just said. Here is a man who is who in context should have known, like all the other people did, but yet denies. A role, but still accepts the punishment for the context that he denies. Am I following here? Yeah, yeah. He, so, in one sense, I'm getting he's not admitting to himself, or the sin is so unfathomable. It's the abyss. He can't tell himself that yes, you committed this sin, you contributed to it, but yet for him to cope that yes, okay, I'll get punishment, but still, I'm not. I'm leaving myself off the hook in my mind. or So he can sleep at night. Yeah. Yeah. So he can sleep or he can put it off, hold it off, do, you know, engage his brain. Then something triggers and reminds and, 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 and go with that. It's, you know, we don't know when his weakest moments were. Maybe when he went to sleep, maybe he was going to bed waking up the first thing he'd think, or he'd see something and triggers outside with that. It, I often just, not trying to change. We're going to stay in your subject here, but I often think of Donald Trump. How does Trump, with all the allegations of rape, of that, and other associated crimes, how does he live with himself? How does he? It's he doesn't come right. At, well, at times he'll come out and he'll deny that, but yet to continue. I mean, why isn't the man broken? Why isn't he dead? I mean, I would, I would think that all that stress on his heart, you know, Val would go or something with that. No, he has no moral center. He, he has no right. interest but himself. Yeah. but Speer had two interests. That's the thing, yeah. He had that's himself, and Speer had the interests of a future Germany because he went into the bunker, and he oh. told Hitler, I am not going to destroy Germany for you. Yeah. And that's a fact. Yeah. It So... That's something that's hard to grasp, no. but that would be interesting. That would be, and that's the thing about history is, that, you know, what you're saying here is that, and then it gets in the realm of art and that line art and history can be blurred. You were talking earlier, the, the lady may have altered the tapes to prove a point, but yet the interviewer said, I can't prove one way or the other. I would rely on the face-to-face person who's had all those hours and go with his assessment right there. If we in a lot of cases in history, if we knew the actual truth, we'd probably be upset and go, that's it. Really? When we want the mythology, we want the, the, what ifs, the whodunits, 
the conjecture because that's what spurs us on. The unbelievable second career of the good Nazi. The director is Vanessa Lepa, Israeli film. Okay. So the Israelis always seem to have their fingers on because we're Jewish and we suffered. And therefore we have some say what can be read, what can be not read or written or shown or what you know, in case you can feel that. Part, and I understand why, 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 why they have a, some form of, they'd say, a moral authority. You have to present the history. You have to show it regardless and have the discussion afterwards. Then let the current and then later the future historians write the damn book, show the movies. You know, you and I see history as like this, this massive intersection of all these avenues that are coming together. And yet the cars and trucks still weave with that. But it's so fascinating. It's like, you know, what branch? Who do we go to with that? And using that metaphor, the the intersection is it. What direction do we go? Or, you know that. That's what spurs us on, because it's the ideas, it's the events, the personalities. Because we often wonder, and I think of myself, could I have done that if I was in Germany? Would I become a member of the Nazi Party? One of the links that you sent me was about the guy who grew up literally grew up in the Nazi party. He survived it, went to England, married his grandson and granddaughter, did all the research. It's one of the links you sent to me. I read the book. Fascinating. How a person became a Nazi and after the war still relished being a Nazi, but yet was not public about it. It wasn't just the good old days, but he still felt that it was the right thing. You know, it's, it, I read, uh, I think I showed you or told you about, um, oh, about the, uh, the rise of white power, uh, the war comes home, uh, about how Vietnam vets started the uh, militia groups and stuff, and then got hooked up with the Nazis, with the KKK and stuff. And now we've got what we were seeing, the full blown thing going on here with that. And as I'm reading this, uh, thinking, you really have to conscientiously tell yourself these lies to say that Jews and blacks and Hispanics are bad. Women should be second class helping the men because we're going to overthrow the government because the government is our enemy. To keep telling yourself that and to indoctrinate youngsters into that to get the second turn, that's where you have the Timothy phase and such come in. Long story short here is that wouldn't there be those moments where you think, this is such a lie. This is a crock of shit. Goes back to Albert Speer. He has those moments that you're talking about that he still, he wants to say, I was wrong, but doesn't and gives himself a hook to something to say, okay, pull me out of here. Pull me out of here. Give me the punishment. Fine. I'll take it. Okay. Okay. And he's in there for 20 plus years. Okay. But you see what I'm saying here? Is that? Well, he's not going to argue with the 20 years because he's, just thinking he just escaped death and he's quite happy not to hang. Yeah. But will he escape hell? I would say no. Oh, probably not. Uh, if there's a hell, I expect him to be there burning. Oh yeah. Yeah. And suffer the most horrendous torments that, that it'd be greater than whatever he could, he could ever imagine or so with that. Oh, well, Spare was just different. You know, he, he was a, a degreed architect who worked in a private firm. He was in that way. He was both an engineer and an artist, and he had a, a taste and an esthete at the time that was quite popular. 
he wasn't like all the other weird people. And you know who I mean? Like Himmler, the pig farmer or uh, fucking champagne salesman as your foreign minister, you know, Hitler being a paper hanging son of a bitch like Patton had called him. You know, yeah. these guys were just strange or Goering, who didn't have a job for 15 years. You know, these, these, these were weirdos. These Hans Frank, all of them were just weirdos. The guy who was running the, the five-year plan. Speer was the one who stands out where everyone could just pass him by on the street and just know he was normal. And that's the strange and, and fascinating and quite disturbing thing is that Speer was normal and so he, he still was, participated in it. He's, he was okay. So through his training, through his education, he was still seduced by that. Yeah. And, that's and he wasn't the only one. Oh yeah. But it's, it's, it's frightening, isn't it? So yes. It's, not, it, 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 it's, you know, I have, I mean, he's like Rex Tillerson or Betsy DeVos or you go down the line. I mean, Tillerson was a normal person until he was associated with that regime. Yeah. And Betsy DeVos was a little strange, but she wasn't a wacko until she got that job. And then it all came out. Yes. Yeah. And that's frightening because those folks are still in Washington to some degree. Or Pulling the levers. Here they are. They're worried about power. I'm, and then I'm reading stories about the drought, and I'm reading about how the, the Great Salt Lake is drying, and over 2.5 million people are going to be affected with the poisons that's going to be lifted in the air and transported. How about we do something to prevent this rather than you worrying about power and investigating Hunter Biden? And <laughs> Right, right. Or, you know, the Dead Sea in Israel is about to go away, too. They say that's got like a 10-year lifespan now. I mean, I think we're going to have a reckoning, a reckoning with Congress, that Congress, you are so inept around summer or some of that. We've got all these problems. You, you're not doing what – you were there to be doing. Congress yeah. seems to have been broken since, in my opinion, 2006. Okay. And Who I just. In that time, was it Bonner? Did, that, did he get That's the midterms. That's when the Republicans lost the, the second Bush term mm -hmm. midterms to Pelosi. That was their first time as House Speaker. And I don't want to pick on her, but you know, they were they were so blood-faced about Iraq, that they just were not rational. That's right. And they were so outraged by Iraq that it, it was just, and, and, and in my opinion, it was fake outrage. No one was talking about dead soldiers. Nobody was talking about dead Iraqis. They were all talking about, well, you lied to us, you lied to us, you lied to us. It was like the lie was what they were upset about. Not the fact that there are 300,000 dead Arabs in the middle of the desert. That, that to me, was the most egregious of the, the situation. And I, I was for the war. But it's still, I was like, Jesus Christ, yeah, I didn't vote for that. You know, the, the soldiers you sign on the bottom line, you want to go. Like, I, I had several cousins serve. Yeah, I luck, I, luckily, I got them all back. Some are doing better than most. You know, that, that is an unfortunate a uh, situation that when you serve in the U.S. Army, that is a possibility that that might happen. I'm not happy about those dead soldiers either, based on based on a lie. The people who really did not ask for it were the civilians, you know, and all the little side things that happened of it, Abu Ghraib and all of that. But they're, the moral outrage that they had over Bush just colored their perception of their politics at the time, and they just could not get a hold on it. And it was like they were fighting Vietnam all over again. Well, you're not going to let this Nixon motherfucker get away with it again, you know. It was it was really based on their their perception of what had happened when they were kids as opposed to what was actually happening now.
And that, that's really unfortunate because, as you know, the backlash when Obama came in, it was just the far right just being in fucking incensed that a black man was in office. Like they just could not get over it. As much as the party tried to correct, like when they nominated Romney, I was actually like, wow, I was shocked they got someone so moderate. Mm-hmm. Romney has a, a reputation of, you know, licking his finger and putting it in the air and finding out which way the wind is blowing. And the idea that a, that a conservative evangelical party would put up with a Mormon, like I, I actually had hope. I knew he wasn't going to win. But I thought, oh, the party's not doing so bad. And, and then just things just go right back into the abyss, you know, with Bonner and then now McCarthy. Of course, I don't know if McCarthy's going to survive much longer. Okay, let me ask you this. Is Florida, state of Florida, with DeSantis, is that the petri dish for the rest of the country? Uh, now it is. It used to be Texas, but I think it's <laughs> I think it's Florida now. That's scary. When you go after the college African-American AP course and not allow it, and the college board's finally getting its backbone and fighting him, and he's going after Walt Disney, and he's pushing people out of public education, yeah, uh, because that's our biggest problem right now is Mickey Mouse. Yes, that yeah, taking away this the special uh, what lack of restrictions they have this the, the the odd government system they have at Disney for that. I was listening to NPR today, and they're talking about school vouchers, and I was amazed as not only here in Texas but throughout the nation that it goes back to my Florida question is that they want to incentivize families to receive five, $6,000 per child, per person to have homeschool charter school. Well, the one question that could not get answered by all the people who were for this is that then who oversees this? Right. Who do you, I mean, do we just give handouts to people and say, this is, this is what you're going to write off with that. I mean, it's, you're spending the money, but then who's going to see it and what's going to do with that? And not a single person could come up with an oversight. Who's going to be the watchdog for this? But they all talked about how good this was to be because the public schools aren't helping out their students and they would refer to Florida for that. So comes back to our narrative here with the, the right here in the U.S. comes back with our narrative with Spear is that you get swept, caught up into the current and I think you have a choice that you get caught up and you swim along or maybe you get on a raft or hang onto a log and you're going along, you're going to sink or swim. And I would say swim to shore. I am not going to do this. I've often thought, what would I do if I was a German Jew? If I had the wherewithal, had any inkling, I would have left. I think if I was single, I would have started walking across the damn country. Dave and I got cut off there. The Zoom ended prematurely. I had to call him back, and we were on the phone for another half hour. And I let this line drop that I wish was on the podcast, which was I was reading this book by Bernard Schlink called The Reader, which was made into a great film with uh, Rachel Weiss. And Schlink had this great line in the book. Uh, which was, it wasn't a matter of you knowing or not knowing that the Holocaust existed. If you lived back then, uh, of course you knew. Everybody knew. The question was, uh, why didn't you put the gun in your mouth and pull the trigger once you found out? 
that was the real question. And that was the real question of the morality of the people who lived at that time. I got some questions for you. Okay, go for it. I heard a podcast last week on Dan Snow's History Hit. He had Leslie Patterson on. Leslie Patterson is the screenwriter for All's Quiet on the Western Front. Hmm. And she's nominated for an Oscar for Best Screenplay. And she told this amazing story about how she was always a fan of the novel. She's an American. I think she lives in Britain. She works in the industry and she really wanted to do another version of the film. Um, There was one made in 1979 and people basically have done nothing with it since. And the option to make a movie out of the book of which I'm guessing is a descendant of remark. I think it was 10 or 15,000 a year. So she and her husband were paying 10 or $15,000 a year to option this book, to make a movie out of it. And they were shopping it around, you know, who wants to make, who wants to make, nobody wanted to make it until they started talking with this production company in Germany. And then of course there was a deal with Netflix that she had no idea was going to swoop down and save them all uh, eventually. But she got to the point where she had to reoption this and she had no cash. They had no money. A lot of people who work in, the real nuts and bolts side of the industry, of course, they're actually blue collar people. They're, they don't make a lot of money, but she is a triathlete. Oh, wow. And she competes all over the world for these, these marathons and, and swimming distances and so forth. So there was one, I think in Puerto Rico and she used her last $500 to buy herself a round trip ticket down to Puerto Rico and she competed in this triathlon and she won $15,000 and she re-optioned all quiet on the Western front. And that year they closed the deal. And now, and now she's, she's not Oscar nomination. Yeah. Yeah. And all quiet is, is up for best foreign language picture in the Academy Awards. I, that's a great story. That is a very good story. I I hope it gets hit. it. I've been telling people to read the novel, telling them, not asking, you know, please read. This is, this is very good. Uh, have you seen the movie? Well, I've seen the preview, you know, that, that type of thing. I said, said, sit down and watch the movie. Okay, at least do that. And then you sent your query about 1917. Yes, I've seen 1917. And I've seen it a couple of times because I'm watching for that edit, edit point. You know, the camera keeps moving, keeps moving, keeps moving, keeps moving. And I'm going, man, this is they're, they're hidden or just one camera, whatever the case may be. And he just, but then you get caught back in the story and you, and you think, okay, how they shown the story and their camera movement here. Hard to watch movie in that because of the emotional side of that, but fantastic. Absolutely. Well, and I'm trying to remember who shot that. Yep. Roger Deakins, the man. Oh, we got our, our 10 minute warning. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Roger Deakins, who I think that he's in the top five most nominated 
cinematographers who ever lived and he's in his late 50s now he shot 1917 he shot uh, the big lebowski which <laughs> will amaze everybody he also shot fargo he got an award for fargo he's got his own podcast actually where he talks about cinematography with a couple of other people in the industry and he talked about 1917 and and effectively it's it's unfair to the editor no one can be edited no one can be nominated for editing that movie because i, I don't know how many cuts there is there's 10 or 15 cuts you know yeah and and that's it interestingly enough there is a movie made in ukraine in 2015 called atlantis and it takes place in the future i think it takes place in 2024 or 2025 and it is a very similar movie it is about a uh but it it takes place after a future war with russia in which uh, a veteran from the war with russia is trying to put his life back together and how he's doing that is he's helping this former nurse who served in the war go and find uh, bodies of Ukrainians who have been executed by the Russian special services. That's the film. And it is shot in very much the same way uh, where I think there's only 23 cuts in the entire film. I found it on criterion and I thought, wow, how, how prescient to make a film in 2015 about a future war with Russia in which they're they're excavating the executed remains of Ukrainian citizens. And it happened again. And it happened again. It happened almost exactly the way yeah. the movie was. But 1917, yeah. um, what, what did you like about it? You cared about the characters. You saw yourself. You saw friends that you recognized. You cared about. It. I mean, you're there. You see the changes that the battle is that battle to survive, but it's keeping intact your humanity. When I was reading the book, I kept thinking about 1917, the movie, even though it, you know, there's a Netflix, uh, all quite a Western crowd, but it just, because of the search, it's a quest movie. Will the quest be successful? You see it on different levels of that. I mean, there is the emotional attachment. Let me give you an example here. I watched Creed the other night. Just it was a throw a dart at a movie on HBO Max. Okay, let's see this creed. I was impressed with the script work, what they did on that uh, boxing movie, Rocky. You know, they're trying to get more into that formula. But I found myself caring about the two major characters. My answer is you see the people as individuals, you don't see them as soldiers, but what is this horrific thing doing to people? And that is going on today, right now. And it's gone on when you read the when you read Tim O'Brien, you read even Hemingway uh, about the effects, the cost of war. Who wrote? I think the best book about the Vietnam War is uh, Bright Shining Light. I don't remember who wrote that. I can't Neil Sheehan. Okay. Excellent book. Excellent. I've always been impressed with uh, in history with uh, the rebellion of, in, in Ireland, uh, the, the, the rebellions they've had over the, you know, they're always hailing at a rebellion or so. There is Trinity, written by Leon Uris, which deals with rebellion. And then there is his sequel called Redemption. Three quarters, seven eighths of the book deals with Gallipoli. And finally, you get the main character back to Ireland. 
what's fascinating about it is you learned a lot about Gallipoli and how a failure that was. And then finally, our character gets back to Ireland to do this redemptive theme or so. But Leon Uris, my father, who he always gave us books that if you want to learn about American history, about the Depression, read The Graves of Wrath. You want to read what the troubles are in Ireland, read Redemption or read Trinity. If you want to read about what's going on in the Middle East, read about the Hajj. So he read these books. They're historical novels. And impressed upon my brothers and I to this is how you want to understand history knowing that this is there's fiction in here read it you'll understand it better than a cold dry textbook to your thing about 1917 I'm watching a novel on tv in front of me it's a film formula it's a film all quiet in the western front the book and the film yes there's some differences but that's okay both I mean it's it's I would if I was teaching I would still show Band of Brothers, World War II. You bet I would. Fantastic stuff to help the kids understand that. I would still show Grapes of Wrath, even though the end of the movie is a happy ending, an uplifting when the book, the whole family just, they perish. They're, they're destroyed. some wrap-up questions on all quiet on the western front go for it did you did you watch the oscars no i read about the oscars okay five nominations yeah four wins yeah best international feature film best achievement in music for motion pictures best achievement in cinematography best achievement in production design you proud of that? I was not surprised. I really was not surprised. I knew it wasn't going to win Good. Best Picture, of course. I was surprised that it was even nominated for Best Picture. But I was wanting to know what your reaction was the next day when you woke up and it, and it swept 80% of what it was nominated for. Happy. And felt, in a weird way, vindicated that, hey, great novel. Great movie. This version of the movie, okay, because there's other ones, but this is excellent. And I think they got it right. Yeah, like you, it was not going to win the number one. Of course, then again, if you get the best picture, it doesn't necessarily mean it was the best picture, as you well know. Happy that it was. I will reread the novel probably in a couple of years or so, I think. I just finished this one. Here, if you could see that, the Sea of Tranquility. Yeah. I read Station Eleven before this. I really wanted to read this one. The library didn't have Station – no, they didn't have this in, on hand because they didn't buy it, buy it yet. And so I read Station Eleven. Love Station Eleven. Barbara, I watched the HBO Max series, season one of Station Eleven. Fantastic. They took the book – followed the book, and then they expanded and did some things different, or they added to the book. 
The series was excellent. We were, we're sitting there going, like, this, yeah, let's watch the next episode. Okay, let's go. We had two episodes before we finished it, and we waited for 24, 40 hours. But like, okay. We sat down and watched it. It's like library contacted me and said, hey, Dave, your book's in. Sure enough, got it, read it within two days, and it's excellent. Again, it's she tells stories through dialogue of characters, and her timelines – are juxtaposed and there's always some element of danger such as a pandemic or a murder or something has occurred that crosses not only these characters but generations of characters like the daughter or a child of this woman who had an affair or something going on in a different time or if it's a time traveler you have someone from the future who's trying to find this anomaly this shift in the natural world that Something isn't right, and they're trying, and they're really, they're detectives from the future. Earth has colonized three places, not only on the moon, but also on smaller moons out in the universe. But back on Earth, they still have, instead of countries, because of the atmosphere and the environment, they have created these cities like the state of Los Angeles or the state of Boston or the state of Athens. So they've got domes around them of some sort. That protect, and so then they have these airships flying all over the place. Okay, long story short, pandemics, particularly germ pandemics, are still afflicting human beings. They still don't have the technology to, to eradicate them. So they have to cope with them by sending people out into outer space because they have the technology to do that. Henceforth, they set up this quasi-police station that is not only doing research, but recognizing that there seems these queer things in the timeline of human history. What is this? So they send people back in a time machine after extensive research that they can plant them in a cocktail party. They can plant them in a forest. They can plant them on a train. And these time travelers, these detectives are so comfortable because they've studied what human history was prior to the event at the event and afterwards that they don't leave a footprint unless they want to, to change history. And one person did leave a footprint and he became an outlaw and a criminal from those folks and they had to rehabilitate him. Huh. He made a human decision to save a life of a famous writer who should have died in the pandemic, but he met her, told her what to do, and she survived the pandemic. Henceforth, she changed, or that timeline in history, human history, changed. So then the police went after him, and they could track him because he had uh, something inserted into his skin, so they could follow him wherever he's going. And long story short, I can't, I don't want to say because I ruined the book, but he became not only the solution who provided how to fix the anomaly, but he was also the problem with the anomaly and how that came about is the interesting story. So the gist of the book is that humanity, human nature and such with that, it kind of goes back to uh, some of the movie telling of, um, Oh, not Kenny Reeves played it, not the John Wick series, but the, uh, Oh, the matrix. Thank you. Okay. So it was, it had that philosophy of the matrix. Thank you. So she does this writer here. Uh, she's written five or six novels now. Great dialogue, plays with the ideas. Things are not always a happy ending. 
people die because people do die and for various reasons just writing you care about the characters you, you she's teaching us what it means to be a human being but not just to love to hate to kill to nurture to forgive to grieve but to do more what what, what is that as a human it kind of goes back to uh all quite the western front what's the role of the guys there what are they doing you know they're they are probably the most humane individuals. They know what humanity is all about because they're merged in the war. They see that and they feel it. But they, when our main character, remember when he went home and tried to talk with his mom, talk with his dad, he was so out of sorts with his community. Well, and that's a very, they were not, that's a very common veteran experience. I think, you know, I had, yes, I had three cousins who served in Iraq and Afghanistan and, uh, I, I think that they adjusted well, but there's no way that they can describe their experience to me to a point where I would, I would get it. I think I I saw this really interesting documentary called Gunner Palace. It was about this battalion that was staying in one of Saddam's palaces outside Baghdad, and they were using it as a base of operations, and they were patrolling the neighborhood, you know, and it was like this little bubble of America that was in this horrible, horrible neighborhood. And, uh, and I know that one of my cousins was in exactly that same framework. And, uh, that was about as close as I could get to his real experience. And I think that experience that remark writes about going home. I think that's very common of veterans of, of all countries. Like, we know for a fact these these older guys that we knew when we were teaching, like taught U.S. history. He was a Vietnam War vet. He was a lance corporal in the, in the first division, United States Marine Corps. He was in country uh, 1966 to 1967, and he, he was very upfront about his war experience. But uh, but you know, there's going to be this enormous gap, yeah. and I think there always will be. These guys in Ukraine when they go home. How are they going to be able to explain what they've been through? You know, they can't. I don't think they can. So this this author also wrote Station Eleven. You said, yes, and that's a show on HBO Max. I think. Yes, it is with Mackenzie Davis. Highly, yes. Okay, I haven't seen it, but it's interesting. I was I was going through Remark's other books, and you know, there's a lot of propaganda anti-remark propaganda uh, during the National Socialist era. And you kind of have to wade through this, like what's true and what's not true. But they actually, you know, they tried to deny that he even served. And they revoked his German citizenship. Oh, my. And Goebbels uh, made a speech about him, a very inflammatory speech about how he wasn't real German because he didn't spell his name correctly. Well, the dude was from Alsace which is loaded with French influence, you know, and the Germans are obviously so territorial about Alsace. Uh, He was conscripted, by the way, okay? He was drafted at the age of 18, and I tracked him down. He was in the 2nd Company Reserves, Field Depot, 2nd Guards Reserve Division at Himligo, and uh, in June of 1917, he went to the 15th Reserve Infantry Regiment, 2nd Company, Engineer Platoon Beth, and fought in the trenches near Holthost. And in July, he was wounded by, July 1917, he was, he was wounded by shell shrapnel in his leg. 
his right arm and his neck. And after being medically evacuated from the field, he was repatriated to an army hospital in Germany where he recovered from his wounds. In October, he was recalled to military service in October 1918. But of course, a month later, he the war was over. So this yeah. is the guy that they're saying, oh, he didn't really fight the war. This is way too much detail that's popularly known for, for them to even say this. I mean, what are those guys who, who fought with them? What are they supposed to do? Just forget that they fought with this famous author? You know, it's like people walking around in, in Catalonia in, in 1936 going, uh, who's this George Orwell guy? I don't I've never, I never yeah. knew him. <laughs> yeah. As soon as you're talking that Orwell popped in my head, you bet. So, but I did look at his other books. I got to track down some of these books. One of them is called Station at the Horizon. And that is another book about the war that I'm unfamiliar with. He also wrote one called The Road Back, which describes his reintegration into German society. It's All these are, are works of fiction, of course, but he sets them up that way. He wrote one called Three Comrades, Dry Kameraden, which spans the years of the Weimar Republic, including the hyperinflation of 1923. I'm very interested to read this to find out what it was like for a german veteran to try to get back into society in the years after the war uh the ark of triumph which was published in 1945 uh shadows in paradise uh, which is about uh, his life in new york because he and his wife immigrated to the united states he and his wife had uh, tons of marital problems they divorced but they were living in switzerland she could be deported back to germany so they remarried just so they could get out of Switzerland and get into the United States. And when they got citizenship as a couple, then they divorced again. And he moved back to to Switzerland. She stayed in the United States. I think she died in 1975. Remark died in, uh, I think, 1972. So he, he wrote tons of short stories. He was, he was part of this German immigrant community. He knew Douglas Sirk, the famous Hollywood director. And who did uh, Imitation of Life and um, all these others. He actually wrote several screenplays. Most of them have never been published. One was called Heaven Has No Favorites, which which was a book that he also wrote. And that was turned into a movie called Bobby Deerfield, which Al Pacino starred in in 1977. So this is a very strange situation. This, This whole aspect of his life that I was unfamiliar with. The one thing that floored me, it's going to floor you. In 1943, the Nazis arrested his youngest sister, Elfriede Schultz, who who had stayed behind in Germany with her husband and two children. She was arrested by the Volksgerichtshof, which is the People's Court. And she was found guilty of undermining morale for stating that she considered the war was lost. So someone in the SD, the the Sekerheitsdites, the internal secret police, Someone had an informant who heard her say this. Yeah. The war is lost. In 1943, she's saying this. She was arrested, hauled before the People's Court. Roland Freisler, who was the court president, said in the courtroom, your brother is unfortunately beyond our reach. You, however, will not escape us. So they knew who she was. She was targeted. Remark's whole family was targeted. She was convicted like she ever had a chance, right? And Dave, she was beheaded in December of 1943. Oh. 
fucking beheaded by guillotine. Now, Remark had no clue this was going on until after the war ended. He went back to Europe to go find his family, and that's when he found out what happened to her. But he said that he knew before the war broke out and before he left Switzerland, he knew that she was involved in anti-Nazi activities. But that is a crazy story. He also, this will get you going, he also had affairs with, are you ready? Okay. Hedy Lamar. Oh, wow. Dolores Del Rio. Yeah. And can you guess who the third one is? It's got to be someone of that time period. Uh, who's the most Who's the most famous German actress in the 1930s and 40s? Dietrich, Monina Dietrich. Ding, 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 ding. You win the prize. He had an affair with her. Now, to be fair, I think Orson Welles also had affairs with these ladies. So okay. I, I think that we should recognize that these ladies have very good taste. <laughs> Understatement. He died in 72. Yeah, understatement. He died at 72. Okay. Uh, at the and, age of 72 in Locarno. Okay, 72 and 72, born in 1900 by age 18, 17. So he was a young buck in the war. Very young. Yeah. Okay. And he, he wrote a history of uh, the the early part of the war called uh, The Black Obelisk, 1957. Okay. So I'm going to start hunting down. Uh, he, he, he actually wrote a book that's kind of like Casablanca. It's about people in Lisbon trying to get out of mm-hmm. Portugal during the war. It's called The Night in Lisbon. That was 1964. So I'm going to track these down. If I find any copies, especially if they're cheap, I'm going to throw them your way. Okay, but I would are you inter- you could once you read them first then then throw them my way. How's that sound? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Deal. Okay, good. Please Deal. please please do that. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff. And when I see some things on TV, what HBO Max puts on and some things in Netflix, I think of there's a lot of crap on Netflix. Yeah, in Canada we uh we nicknamed it shit flicks. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Yeah, and, and when they cancel some series, which is actually the first season, they say, oh, there's not enough viewership. You've got to be kidding. I mean, give something in two, three years to mature and, and go, with the exception of Game of Thrones, the last two seasons. Oh, boy. That was not, uh, I think, but I thought the first, what, five or six years, they did a fantastic job. If you want to know my thoughts on Game of Thrones, you go to my website and you find my GOT diary. Okay. One of my Best friends gave me the entire series on Blu-ray, and I watched every episode uh, probably in about three months. I watched the entire series, and I wrote a episode-by-episode blog about it. Sometimes it was a sentence. Sometimes it was a a paragraph. Sometimes (laughs) it was a page. I wrote like a four- or five-page conclusion, and... My thoughts on that are are controversial, and if you care to devote that much time, or if you have a specific episode you want my opinion on, then you go to that. Or if you just want to scroll to the last season, which is what most people do because the last <laughs> season is so controversial, you go right on ahead. Yeah, yeah. We are, uh, we we're because of what we used to do for a living, which is educate people who were. 20 to 30 years younger than us. Yes. It's very easy for us. It was very easy for us to be jaded about the generation who came after. Yeah. 
And it took me a very long time to realize that that generation, a lot of those kids who were born in 1980 and 1985, those were the kids who went and defended our country overseas. Yes, it did. Those are the kids who coordinated airstrikes in Syria. Those are the kids who did airlifts in Africa. Those are the kids who went to Iraq and Afghanistan to help uh, you and me and and protect our families. Yes. And so that gives me great hope. That gives me great uh, inspiration to think that those kids who came after us, a lot of them, most of them, I'd like to say they're good Americans, regardless of where they're from, what color they are, what language they originally spoke. And I think that our country is going to, I have a terminable hope for our country because of guys like that, because of people like that, I should say. And I'd like, it's very easy to dismiss that saying you and I read remark, you and I get remark. We understand remark. We watch remark on film, but what is the younger generation going to do? That's 20 years younger than us, 30 years. It's very, it's very upsetting to think what, what could happen. But in fact, I think. I think we're in good hands. Yeah. yeah. I think we're going to be all right. As long as they keep reading Remark, I think we're going to be all right. Yeah. The story I sent to you about the the gorilla uh, book ban. Yeah. Ben and yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's hope. I, uh, it's, you know, I'm thinking if I probably would have been fired because I was offering books, controversial books to my students to read. And I was telling them about how, you know, our country is based on uh, genocide and, and also slavery. It's, I mean, one to shock the kids, but also too that, yeah, it really did happen. Okay. Long story short is that I think what the band people are doing is, you know, it's the irony is that you want to get a kid to read, ban a book, you know, say so you can't read it. What the kid's going to do, kid's going to read the book and discover that he or she likes the book or doesn't like the book, but yet makes an impression upon them. And that, banned book may encourage that kid to become a writer, a filmographer, uh, a script writer. You know, it's, it's, you know, you, it gives them that opportunity, that outlet, that, that creativeness to, to do that. And it's like, okay, go ahead, go for it, go for it. You've got, I mean, it's, so there's hope. That's, that's my point is that, and sometimes I think it comes down to taste that you and I are the generation that we, tastefully respect, admire, like, and laud remark. But for new generations, they may go, I don't know who he is, for he is, it's old-fashioned. But give them 10, 20 years, give them 30 years, they read the book and go, oh, wow, I should have read that. and Or I appreciate it. I read it once, didn't, but now I do appreciate it. I can read, I read, for example, real, real quick here, sidebar, I read Asimov, uh, Ray Bradbury, Philip K. Dick, and of those three, I will still reread Philip K. Dick. But the other two, lack of characters, lack of a plot. It just is like, oh, oh, guys, you just. It, when I was a young man, young kid, I thoroughly enjoyed them. But I have a hard time plowing through that ground again because they're not my writing taste, my needs, my preferences. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I lament the fact that we are seems four or five steps away from burning books in this country. Yeah. And, and 85 years ago, you know who they were burning? Yep. Remark. Remark. who they were burning. Yes. And I think obviously information is power. 
and education is power. And there are offensive books out there, the Turner Diaries, mm-hmm. you know, the the Arsonist's Handbook. There are dangerous books out there, but there are few. And then you have to ask yourself, as as any type of person who has power of censorship, whether you're an elected official or appointed official or a parent trying to uh, make your child safe, what is the purpose of the book? Is it to educate? Is it to inform? Is it to make the world a better place? Or is the purpose of the book to hate, to lie, to cheat? Is the purpose of the book to misinform? These things matter. You know, if you read a speech by Franklin Roosevelt and you read a speech by Joseph Goebbels on the same day in the same year, you can tell the difference. You can tell the difference. And it's just a a shame that so much of America is perfectly fine with getting rid of books that are meant to inform. Okay. Playboy. Do you get rid of Playboy? Playboy had some of the best writers writing for the magazine. And they had pictures of naked girls, ladies. Those writers, like Shel Silverstein, fantastic poet. Kelsey was reading his poetry. And she was like, where, I mean, where does it publish that? In Playboy. Oh, really? Yes. Norman Mailer as well, too. I mean, Come on, uh, whether you like him or not, it was the books that some of the stuff I could just do because he's not tastefully, he's not down my down my road. But fantastic writer, Ken Trossley, the famous cartoonist, he he drew pictures for Hustler. Yes, yes. Okay, that is art. Keep reading, keep the controversy going because it piques people's interest. Because those very people who were trying to peak are going to defend our country. We're going to put their lives on the line, and they will become. The teachers, the IBM execs, you know, whomever the case may be. Anyway, you get the last word in, please. It's not me. I hope the millennials will pull us out of this mess because they're <laughs> all we've got right now. Uh, not all is lost. Not all is lost. It's not. It's a, it's a fight. It's, it's, it's a diversity fight. Well, that's it, folks. It's a very non-traditional presentation of some very eclectic stuff, but I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Dylan Davis. You can find me, my books, and my blog on thatdylandavis.com, and you can savage me at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. But please be kind on the iTunes review. I'm Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time in New Delhi.
arms agreements inside Moscow, you know, none of that matters. It's just about power. The Americans showed their power. And so now he was showing his power. Um, now it looks like the Russians are powerful. Look what we can do. We can make a mess inside American politics, which ends with bloodshed on the steps of the Capitol. And since we've shown that we're powerful, what are we going to do next? We're going to invade Ukraine. Because obviously this crew of people who can, who can just barely get Biden into office, this crew of people is not going to do anything about that. So January 6th, apart from anything else, leads directly to the war in Ukraine. Because it, 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 it looks like America is not just morally discredited, it looks like America is weak.